Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the journalism.co.uk podcast. This week we're giving you the chance to hear the latest presentation from mobile journalist Yusuf Omar. He spoke at the recent conference Building the Future of Community Journalism, which was all about the advancement and importance of community journalism within our industry. We're the next billion mobile users and we won't be silenced. We're here to engage and inform. Empowering mobile storytellers to bring about reform. We don't need satellite trucks and that's a fact. Faster and cheaper than that. Good storytelling has always been about more voices. And mobile cameras simply means more choices. With more angles, perspectives and truth than before. There's a different way of telling stories. We need to explore. Let's not ignore traditional media success. But surely we're better than this. Our stories are being drowned and the conversation has ended. Truth and trust have been lost, but mobile storytelling can mend it. Finding narratives in the noise, we don't need to conform. Let's identify languages being lost in the storm. See a lack of media diversity is what's really affecting me. We talk about fake news, but don't listen to enough real views. We know misrepresentation can lead to wars. So this is our cause. Hashtag Hashtag our stories. What's yours? Hashtag our stories, co-founded by husband and wife duo Yusuf and Samaya Omar, aims to encourage the creation of mobile storytelling communities around the world, enabling more people to talk about the issues that don't make the mainstream media. The team has travelled to 25 countries in the last four months, engaging with niche communities in India, Australia, Norway and Indonesia, to name a few. The idea is that anyone with a smartphone, journalist or not, can tell their story to the world using social media platforms such as Facebook and Snapchat. Speaking at Building the Future of Community Journalism in Cardiff, Yusuf Omar explained why he believes community journalism may be the future of news. For me, community journalism equals diversity. I believe at our best we have access to more views, more angles, more perspectives, and and that means more truth. I'm part of an entire generation that have been in the camera all the time. We overshare absolutely everything. My generation invented the toilet selfie. We are totally in tune with with sharing our entire lives. We've swiped right on on Tinder to find our next love. We've scrolled down LinkedIn to find our next jobs. We've even given birth to revolutions using our mobile phones, the Arab Spring, these kinds of movements. And this trajectory is only gonna increase. And at the intersection of virtual reality, live video, 8K, All of these technologies, it's going to fundamentally change community journalism because it's going to suddenly go from communities producing shaky, handheld, not very good footage to everybody being able to do uh, content that's effectively as good as the broadcasters, as good as anybody else. The differentiator is going to become very small. The exciting thing that I'm here to tell you is that the internet is actually going to enable community journalism in a big way. The last few years we've been chasing 5 million followers, 10 million followers, 100 million followers. The internet is now moving to a space of hyper, hyper local content. It's of more value to have lots of nodes. McCall's theory of networks, the more nodes you have, the more powerful your network is. We're increasingly finding that it's of more value to have 100 Facebook pages with 1,000 followers on each than have one big Facebook page. 
And that's interesting and exciting for you guys. You can have a page on Cardiff's football club. You can have a page on Cardiff foodies and all these things. And you'll have very targeted, specific audiences, which is great for advertisers. We can tap in and know exactly who we're marketing on. So I think the internet is a really good thing for the business model. And we're seeing new sources of revenue that are emerging. Just yesterday, Facebook announced and they started piloting local news as a separate tab on Facebook. And that's made up of artificial intelligence, a little bit of curation by their teams, and they've effectively taken a separate slice of Facebook and said this area is designated just for local news. Snapchat have partnered with college newspapers across the United States. They realize that people want to know what's happening in their communities. So while the big players are struggling to monetize online, we may find ourselves in a situation where community journalism will prevail. And yet we are in an absolute crisis. We've heard some of this crisis over the last few hours. I was in India the day before yesterday. And in India, over 80%, the most recent study, which was done 10 years ago, but it still remains true. The most recent study shows that 80% of management in news organizations are upper caste Hindu males. We have a huge diversity problem. It's not just this room, it's not just this conference, it's the entire industry. And also this week, the Committee to Protect Journalists, I'm sure you guys have seen, have listed the biggest threats to press freedom. And up on that list are Trump, are Putin, are Erdogan, are many of the biggest and most powerful leaders of our time. I believe that community journalism is our best chance of fighting these forces. I believe if we were better listening to many of your organizations, if we were better listening to many of our communities on the ground, we would have been in a better position to predict Brexit and Trump. We would have seen these things coming because we would have been listening to people in hard to reach places instead of simply looking at polls and pundits and commentators and largely focusing the media's attention in the US on the East and West Coast and right here in the UK, largely focusing on London, the metropolis and not looking at the broader England. I believe community journalism is our best chance of understanding the present, but also predicting the future. Look at BBC, look at CNN, look at any of the major broadcasters. They don't have correspondence on the ground in places like Syria. We are crossing to a reporter in Lebanon who's telling us what's happening on the ground in Syria. We're crossing to Egypt. We are entirely relying on community journalism and citizen journalism. That's why, after visiting Syria, I've largely dedicated my career to training storytelling communities around the world so we can get access to hard-to-reach places. So after training hundreds of community journalists around the world, what lessons have Yusuf and Samai learned for their work going forward? And what can news organisations do if they're and what can news organisations do if they're looking to start a team or experiment for themselves? If you're training community journalism projects, I suggest not to rely on people that already have full-time jobs. People that are doing something else that you're like, hey, can you also be a journalist on the side? From my experience where we've trained communities, there's no real sustainability to that. One of my favorite stories that we've covered was this year, we, we, we traveled to Sri Lanka and we trained one young storyteller from every South Asian country except for Afghanistan. And one of them was Sara, and Sara's from the Maldives. If you don't know, Maldives has a huge issue with press freedom. Uh, press freedom is, is, is next to none, it's, it's a real problem. And she told a beautiful story, which she produced for us, about uh, Eid Day, celebration of Eid, and the way her community were dressing up as washing machines on Eid Day to represent cleaning of dirty money by their politicians. 
So it was a really weird story and, and super hyper-local. Like, that would never traditionally make your, your, your bulletins. But people could relate to it because it was so quirky and unusual. And for her, being able to publish on, on our platform was a, an output, was, was, was a platform because her traditional media and, and the media in her country would have never run with that story. Having said that, after that story, we haven't heard from her. She's busy, she has a full-time job, and so do so many other people that we train that have full-time jobs. And we're now increasingly looking to those that don't have full-time work and training them in, in citizen journalism. The next is, often we find when we're doing citizen journalism projects, we try and recruit people with a journalistic background. People who have done journalism courses, journalism degrees, maybe they've worked in a local community newspaper. For me, I'm more interested in training somebody who is socially active, who is well-known in their community, who is potentially well-respected in their community, who is in touch with the NGOs, in touch with civil society, who really has their ear on the ground of what's going on and, and people trust them. I think that's really important to me. Uh, one example that you guys should potentially check out, now this, are doing a fantastic series. We were in the US and, and we caught wind of the series that they were working on with survivors of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico was a huge storm, press came in, covered it, they left, and yet the rebuild is happening for months and years to come. And they've trained a bunch of community storytellers to tell stories, and these guys are doing an absolutely amazing job, and it's such a personal... I still don't have electricity. There's still people in need of food, water. It's been more than 50 days, and uh, we're still fucked. It's such an interesting perspective, and it's shaky, and it's handheld, and the audio sucks, and nobody gives a shit. We just want a good story. And that's really the perspective that they're offering. The next point is that the community should define what stories they want to tell. Uh, I fundamentally believe that, that if we're going to do this right, it's about listening more than dictating. About us empowering them with tools to do storytelling, but not dictating the kinds of stories that they should be doing. And in doing so, it's a simple idea, but you achieve such interesting results. We, my wife and I, were in Serbia, and we trained a bunch of refugees from uh, Libya, from across the, uh, Afghanistan, who were in Serbia, and they're desperately trying to make their way to Germany. That's the end game. That's the, the gold standard for, for, for many refugees traveling across Europe. And one such guy that we met was Ozer. And he was super amazing, he had a man bun, he was just like a cool dude. And we trained him up to, to tell stories with his phone. And the stories he started telling were not the typical brown guy coming off a rubber dinghy on the shores of Europe, which is the image we think of when we see refugees. No. He was telling the story that he's now 17, which means he's too old to get an education in Serbia. And he's desperately in need of it because he's missed years of his life of high school, which he's trying to catch up with. My name is Uzay Fekirzadeh. Now we are in the place. Today, I heard a lot of the guys that they come and they want to enjoy and they want to learn new things from here. Uh, the biggest problem for the refugee in this school is that uh, they couldn't understand story too much well and so easily and it's you know almost a problem for all of the people Goodbye. that are going to school to other school to it's nothing uh, they are native uh, they are not uh, native speaker we are trying to make finding the place in school easier for that student they can't 
time, I couldn't afford to pay him for his stories. But what I could provide him with was tools to do better stories. I could connect him with product companies and get him microphones and tripods and anything that would help him create stories. And the most exciting result that I can share with you about Rosera is he messaged us just last night as we landed in Cardiff to say, hey, guess what, dude? I've set up my own Mojo workshop. I'm like you, I can train people too. And he's training refugees in his community. For me, that is the ideal result of a community journalism project. If you can train a trainer to then spread that, that's the ultimate way, way to scale something like this. The next thing I wanna to talk to you guys about is the, the digital divide. And we're on the, all of us here are on the right side of the digital divide. We all have 3G, 4G phones, we're all on this Wi-Fi, it's all amazing. But so many people are not. I was in South Korea about a month ago, and they are trying to get community news to North Koreans and pop culture and a bunch of other stuff. But North Korea doesn't have an open internet. So what they're doing is they're crowdsourcing USBs. They're asking people to provide USB sticks. Everyone's sending you USB sticks. And they're compiling stories on USB sticks and sending them on balloons over the border into North Korea because they're on the wrong side of the digital divide. And we're seeing so many of these incredible stories, that story is called uh, Flash Drives for Freedom, uh, of people on the wrong side of the digital divide that are still getting access to information in the most unusual and unorthodox ways. But it's so important to consider that many communities, even in first world countries, may have issues with connectivity and these sorts of things. The next thing is don't reject anything. We, at Hashtag Our Stories, we never, ever, ever say no. We're not gonna cover that story. We never say no to a pitch. We'll take a bad pitch and we'll make it better, but we won't reject an idea because if that's a story to that individual or that community, then it's a story worth telling. Who are we to dictate what is and isn't news? Yes, it might not include the who, where, what, when, why, how that we are trained to associate with a pitch, but we can work on that. But don't reject a story. And I think communities often look at media a bit skeptically because we swoop in and we fish out a story and then we go out again. Instead of grabbing the story from the top, we try and push from the bottom up. We train them in how to tell stories and how to pitch stories and you push upwards and then they provide story ideas of their own without you having to pull. And we've seen interesting results from this again. In Thailand we've been working and water stories, just basic, basic stories in little communities about people that are trying to get access to clean drinking water. To be honest, when we arrived in Thailand, that wasn't even on our top 10 list of stories that we were looking at. We were looking at sexuality, we were looking at all sorts of things. And the most basic thing emerged, water stories, simply because they said that that's what they were interested in covering. Expect gatekeepers. We have gatekeepers in society all the time. Traditional media are gatekeepers, politicians are gatekeepers, civil society are gatekeepers. And of course we have outlets against gatekeepers too. Social media is a great way to bypass those gatekeepers. But we are increasingly finding that not everybody approves or even supports community journalism. We were in Croatia about a month and a half ago and we arrived at this amazing hotel where they've converted the hotel into a refugee center. Big, like a, maybe a three, four star hotel turned into a refugee center. And we tried for days to get in touch with the refugee center. We tried for days to get in touch with all sorts of people. And we heard that there was an appetite for us to do some work. But yet the police, on a regular basis, refuse us entry to do any sort of journalism training with the refugees. There are some stories that, and uh, some communities that some people do not want to be empowered. But yet we find also interesting applications. In <coughs> Croatia, there's a, there's a 
brand called Jumbus. Jumbus is part of a company called 24 Sata. They are a tabloidy newspaper, uh, television station, sorry, 24 Sata. They were struggling to get access to community stories. So what did they do? They took 12 millennials, they trained them up, they gave them their own YouTube channel, <coughs> and they set them off to create hyperlocal community news as influencers, as vloggers. They've already amounted 300,000 subscribers and they've monetized that YouTube platform in their own way. So they've got 24 Sata, which is like this national news station, and they've got a little YouTube channel for influencers to tell hyperlocal stories. The next is listen to selfies. Listen to people with mobile phones. We're working in Norway. Anyone familiar with NRK? NRK is the, is the national broadcaster, the public broadcaster in Norway. And they have a smaller show called Supernate. Supernate is one of the best kids' news shows that there are around. And what they do for the last 10 minutes of every bulletin, the last 10 minutes of an hour-long hour show, they aggregate from Snapchat and Instagram the voices of young people saying what's happening in their communities, giving the weather reports, giving what's happening in school. On a national television station, hyper-local news told by people on Snapchat. The next point is the marginalized overlap. We are finding time and time again, and, and this most recently we were working in Jordan with refugees from across Syria. If you have to put on a map the people that are women, the people that are disabled, the people that are uneducated, you will find a common commonalities. If it was a vector diagram, you would find gray areas where they all collide. You're seeing increasingly marginalized overlaps of people that are suffering from many compounded issues. Those are the communities I believe we should be focusing on. Those that are at the intersection of many themes. In this case, we look at Bana Alabed. Bana is seven years old. With the help of her mother, she live streams on a regular basis from East Aleppo in Syria at a time where there are no correspondents on the ground. Of course, many people would say, this is subjective, it's not news, it's, you know, and, and so some of that's true. But that doesn't mean that that voice is not of value. I think our role as the media is to contextualize voices like this and using the help of Google Labs and these kinds of organizations and First Draft that have created amazing verification tools and the ability to accurately ascertain what is and isn't real, the role of us as community journalism projects is going to be increasingly to verify our community so that we can authenticate that these voices are valid, that they are verified, and that they can be trusted. I think we need to focus a lot, especially if we're working in hostile environments, on training and protecting people. And not even hostile environments too. Even just say we're looking at domestic violence and we're training communities to be able to report on it. Maybe they don't appreciate the repercussions of what that could happen in their society, how their community will view them. I think it's very, very important that we train communities not just how to tell stories, but how to protect themselves from their community, from their reputations, from whatever may become of the stories that they produce. We often do half of it. We, train, we empower people to tell stories, but we don't tell them what happens once they share that story. I think the second half of that comment is very important. And I was in New York not long ago. I'll stop saying dates because I'm getting confused. But uh, around Christmas time, and I met Witness. Does anyone know Witness, the organization? Witness focus on if you're going to train people to tell stories with mobile phones, how do you do it in the safest way possible? Film safely, ethically. These are such important terms that we need to get across to our communities if we're going to empower them to be part of this journey. And then we can take it a step further. You see more and more community journalism organizations, and we spoke about it a little bit today. We touched on it that are flirting this line between advocacy and journalism, that are saying, 
We're going to identify issues in society and then we're going to work out how to make it better as a collective. Uh, so writing the wrongs that we witness, if, we, if our camera is used to witness. And one particular case I highly suggest you guys check out is Video Volunteers. Video Volunteers are based in, Ker in Goa, India, which is where I was two days ago. And one of the founders, his name is Stalin. He's an amazing guy. And they have a three-step play. Their, their, their first is to educate and mobilize. The second is to report on issues. And the third is to find a solution. So take that video and say, hey, my local counselor, look at this pothole. What are you going to do about it? Find a solution and then record that solution. And everyone gains. The local politician gains because he gets the recognition for fixing the pothole. The community gains because they get their pothole fixed. And it's about righting the wrongs that we witness. And finally, this is something I'm wrestling with at the moment, sharing the dilemma. Stories, as we become more community journalism focused, become more complex. Because you guys only have so much resources, so many editors, and yet you may have tons of communities, and you've suddenly got to make editorial decisions that you may not know enough about that community, or you may not have the bandwidth. A lot of community journalism projects are now sharing that dilemma with the community. They're throwing it back to the community, saying, hey, we're not sure about how to tell this story. We're not sure, to, sure about what's right or wrong, what we should be showing. Should we be revealing this face? Should we be showing this identity? What do you think? And it speaks to this idea of us all sort of swimming in this shit together for a while and, and working out what is and isn't right and wrong. Uh, these are the kinds of dynamics we're trying to explore and understand. And we have to do it with the community to understand what is and isn't appropriate. Are we going to do more hurt <coughs> or harm or good from publishing a story like this? And finally, I believe that it's a luxury to be a volunteer. Everyone in this room can afford to be a volunteer, but many of the communities I work with can't. I think we need to find ways to pay the marginalized if they are citizen journalists. journalists. We can't rely on freebies on this idea of, oh no, I'm providing you with a platform, just do it because I'm, I'm giving you a voice. I think that's bullshit. I think we need to find ways to, 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 to reward people. I think we need to change the metrics. We, as a media organizations working in new media now, are focused on likes, on shares, on views, on how many eyeballs are looking at our content. I realized in India recently, the guy on the street who's got a pothole, he doesn't care if 60 million people watch a video. He cares if the local councillor watches the video. The woman who's being abused by her husband, she doesn't care how many people watch the video. She cares if her husband sees the video and makes a difference. We need to change our metrics and understanding how citizen journalism, how community journalism, what do we define as impact? And it's certainly not views. For us, we trained a group of, of waste pickers in Delhi, now going back a year and a bit ago. We trained garbage collectors, people that collect garbage, how to tell stories with their mobile phones on Instagram stories. We didn't hear anything from them for nine months. They didn't use the training, and I thought it had failed. Then the Indian government raised the GST taxes on recyclable plastics directly impacting their lives. And out of nowhere, we started seeing them telling stories. Nobody was listening to them. When their livelihoods were being impacted, when the price of that plastic was increasing and it would affect their bottom line, that's when they started using their mobile devices. That's when they started communicating their stories. That was when they realized the potential of storytelling to impact their lives. Go where the audience is. Yes, I've been hearing newspapers are so relevant, blah, blah, blah. But if we're telling a story on students, Go to where students are. Students are often on Snapchat, they're on Instagram. Tell stories on those mediums. We were covering education in Delhi. De education is the same calendar event every year, right? This many people apply, this many people get in, blah, 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 blah. 
How can we tell it differently? Well, we trained up six young kids, we trained them how to Snapchat, and they Snapchatted the most stressful six weeks of their lives trying to get into college. And we ended up getting such interesting dynamics of their sex lives, of politics and family, all sorts of things. And I think one of the biggest things we're all struggling with here is how do you do hyper-local stories but have a global reach? How does the story of the local woman with a fridge that she, and this is a real story that we've covered, somebody that's got a fridge which is open to the community where anyone can come and take food. How do you make that go viral? How do you make that relevant to a global audience? And the simple answer is packaging. The way you package the story will determine if it has global appeal. An example of that is this week, we were in this town again in India, and we found a group of guys who are teaching people around the world how to read the Quran, the holy book of Islam, using WhatsApp. And it's a small town, it's a small group of people doing this in a little tiny community of 50,000 people. And yet, we've amassed 150,000 views on a page that has almost no audience. My last point, use high and low tech to get across the, your community journals and projects. High tech are these ridiculous sunglasses. Nobody's asked what they are. They're cameras, I press this button, you see the flashing light? I'm recording you guys right now, like you're recording me. Uh, these are Snapchat spectacles. Gimmicky as hell, but we can use them for journalistic purposes. I was telling the story in the UAE, in the Emirates, about women that are kidnapped from Nigeria on the pretense of work as uh, cleaners and are then effectively forced into sex slavery, forced to be prostitutes in the Emirates. These women didn't want to appear on camera. They didn't want to show their faces, and that's totally fine. So what did we do? We gave them the glasses. They could wear it, press the button, and tell the story through their own eyes, through their own perspective. That's about looking beyond the gimmicks and finding applications for using this to do citizen community journalism. Another interesting application I saw was in India. There's communities where People don't have access to internet, and the, <laughs> it's amazing. They'll go from door to door, and they'll deliver the news as audio recordings via Bluetooth, like a milkman delivering the milk. And they will collect voices via Bluetooth as well, and that will form part of next week's show. We need to find innovative high and low tech solutions. Guys, more angles, more perspectives, only equals more truth. If you'd like to follow along with the hashtag Our Stories initiative, catch the team on Facebook, where they regularly produce a variety of Facebook Lives, news and explainer videos. For more podcasts from journalism.co.uk, please visit our website.